Welcome to the Purse Podcast. My name is Jana Hustova, and we are changing the conversation for women about money and investing. I'm super excited about my guest today, Shelley Porges. Shelley is co-founder and managing partner of the Billion Dollar Fund for Women, a global consortium of venture funds pledged to invest in female-founded firms and beyond the billion, mobilizing LP investors into TBDF funds. She's also a board member of the Financial Alliance for Women and on the advisory board for MindShift Capital, different funds and global investor. Shelley is a globally recognized expert on gender lens venture investing and a leader in fostering global entrepreneurship. She was honored as one of the inaugural Forbes 50 over 50 in investment in 2021. She served as president of the North American Jury for Cartier Women's Initiative for over a decade and as the former senior advisor for the Global Entrepreneurship Program at the US State Department, a program she expanded to almost 150 countries under Secretary Hillary Clinton. Prior to that, she had a distinguished career in the private sector, including both corporate and entrepreneurial ventures. Now, in this podcast interview, we talk about backing female founders, female-led innovation, and how more institutional investors can start to invest with a gender lens. We talk about why gender lens investing is smart business. And we also talk about female investors and why this is so key. And to finish up, Shelley shares a message for women who have access to capital and want to invest in female founders. I hope you enjoy this interview as much as I did. Please note that this podcast interview is for informational purposes only. We do not provide investment advice. Shelley, it's so great to have you on the show. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Great to be here. Now, we're going to be talking about female founders. We're going to be talking about female founders having access to capital and also female investors, all of my favorite topics. But before we do that, can you share with the listeners a little bit about yourself and specifically your journey to where you are today? And why are you interested in female entrepreneurship specifically? What sparked your interest? Thank you. Well, let's start with the female founders, incredibly innovative women solving some of our most crucial problems all over the world. That's what ultimately inspires both me and my co-founder, Sarah Chen, my wonderful co-founder. And what inspired me initially was my own journey. I started my career in the corporate sector, ending up as head of marketing for Bank of America during a historic turnaround. And even in that job where I was in a rather large corporate role, it was my own entrepreneurial instincts, my own entrepreneurial initiatives, and that, you know, mobilizing and inspiring teams and so forth that helped turn the bank around in under 18 months. It was a historic turnaround, actually. It was the largest turnaround at the time in American corporate history that was not government aided. So those folks who don't know about financial services going that far back, you know, might not have an awareness, but uh, we were the largest non-government aided. Chrysler in the 70s had been a larger turnaround, but they were government aided. And part of that was also launching an entrepreneurial initiative at B of A. So there was that. But then I left the bank to start my own entrepreneurial career. I lived in the San Francisco Bay Area where B of A used to be headquartered and we ended up founding or co-founding six companies. 
And I would say that during that time, it was exciting for me to see other women in the ecosystem as well doing amazing things. And then I came to Washington, D.C. in 2005, where I took a little bit of a sidetrack, leveraging my entrepreneurial background into a number of initiatives. But two of them I'd highlight as being particularly relevant for getting me to the point with the Billion Dollar Fund for Women and now Beyond the Billion. And that is, first and foremost, I became a judge for Cartier Women's Initiative Awards, which at the time, and I think still, is the largest women's business plan competition in the world where women from all over the world have a chance to really get non-dilute of capital from Cartier through this competition, $100,000 for the top performer, $60,000 for the second, and $30,000 for the third place winner. And I was seeing just, like I said, the most extraordinary women innovators. And yet after the competition, after they got the Cartier grants, we then tried to get find the venture funding, some of us who were interested in seeing some of these innovations scale. And we're just having the hardest time. And then parallel to that in 2010 to 2013, I also went with Hillary Clinton to the State Department as her senior advisor for global entrepreneurship. And the first thing I launched was something called the Global Women's Business Initiative, again, supporting women entrepreneurs all over the world. So I have a history. This was not out of the blue that this came up. There is a history there. (laughs) And uh, after I left state, after the 2016 election, when I decided to come back to the private sector, I assumed that funding had gotten much better in the time that I'd been away from it and suddenly realizing, no, it has not. It has not gotten better. In fact, it had gotten worse in some ways. In 2015, women were getting 7% of all venture capital. That had gone down in 2017 to like 2.2%. So in 2018, when the opportunity presented itself at the World Bank meetings in Bali, a friend of mine told me that she was behind hosting a blended finance forum around the UN SDGs with a project partner for each of the 17 SDGs. And I asked her, who was the project partner for number five? And she said they didn't have one because they couldn't find anyone to meet their parameters. And that's when my funny brain decided, hmm, maybe I could come up with an idea at the time. Then I started mobilizing some friends, but most importantly, met my co-founder, as I said, Sarah, came up with the idea of the Billion Dollar Fund for Women to mobilize a global consortium of funds who would pledge to do more, to invest more into female founders in exchange for which we would promote them everywhere. We would launch out at the World Bank meetings, promote it there to sovereign wealth funds, high net worth investors, et cetera, and then far beyond that. And we did launch it with the actual expectation that it would take a long time, that maybe up to a decade. Gosh, it seemed like a crazy idea, but when the World Bank accepted that as something we should do, And we said, okay, let's go for it. Let's see what happens here. And to our own astonishment, and I should say the PS was we said we would try our best to come with the first hundred million pledged, not really believing, but figuring, okay, well, let's aim for it. Who knows? Who knows what we can do, right? We undertook that. And by the time we got to the World Bank meetings, a mere two and a half months after we'd committed to doing this, we had over 460 million pledged. And literally, no one was more astonished than we were. So I'll just stop there. Can you explain to folks who aren't familiar the type of pushback women get when raising capital? Why is it difficult for female founders to raise capital, not just in the US, but the world over? Definitely. Can you talk us through that? And also, why is it even more difficult for Black women and ethnic minority women? Those are all great questions. And, you know, the bottom line is that in both cases, for all women, and in particular for women of color, 
it's clear and women, you know, LGBTQ women, all of the above, mm. women with handicaps, et cetera, et cetera. What's clear is that what we're facing here are both personal biases, but also very importantly, systemic biases. And this is, of course, true of sexism, or if you want to call it that, or, you know, the gender challenges we you know, have it with the gender pay gap and every other gap we face. But in the case of venture capital, it's even worse in some ways than the pay gap in that for that subset of women who get to be starting venture backable businesses. And that is that, again, at the time we started, women were getting only 2.2% of all venture capital. And even if you added in all the companies that had even one single female founder that is a gender diverse teams, and of course, we also believe in gender diversity and know that those teams do the best. Even if you added then the gender diverse teams, that was only another 10% for a total of 12%. That meant that all white male teams were getting 88% of all venture capital. And I think we can unpack that too, in terms of what creates these biases. On the one hand, White men created the venture industry, and not to say that they haven't been challenged, they haven't needed necessarily thought they needed to diversify until relatively recently. And I'd say the Me Too movement had some amount of impact in everybody recognizing the layers of challenge. But the number one thing, though, that's happened in a positive sense is just about the same time we were launching, a number of sets of data and growing evidence showed that when you invest in female founders, not to speak of gender diverse teams, your returns are going to be higher. So even if you didn't care about equity, even if you held those personal biases, as an investor, you were not being smart if you were not considering the fact that you could be doing better. So we had numbers and women have continued to have numbers of things going against it. As far as Black women are concerned, despite the fact that Black women are starting businesses at a much higher rate than all of the rest of everybody else in any category, however you want to slice this pie, the challenge for them of getting to venture-backable businesses has been great because in their case, even more than for all women, there's been the issue of not even being able to raise the friends and family capital, not to even to be able to tap into one's own savings necessarily. I'm generalizing here, obviously, and that's not true of everybody, but we were seeing that and we're seeing that huge underestimation of amazingly innovative female founders. You raise a very important point there, which is your network is, is so important as an entrepreneur. And I think one of the major reasons why women find it very difficult, in addition to the systemic bias, the gender bias, is that their networks aren't as established into the existing BC ecosystem. But also you need access to the friends and family, the very early money as a founder to get you up and running. Very early stays at sort of the 10K, the 25K, the 50K. Ideally, you need a 100K to get yourself off the ground. And if you don't have those very early networks in place, it's close to impossible to start your business, let alone then to scale it. And I do want to highlight, and this is something I used to speak about a lot, so I want to mention it now because I think it's an important point for any number of your listeners here, and that is prior to considering venture, and venture is not right for every business, so let's be clear, but prior to considering venture, even if you are building a tech-enabled business that would seem to be primed and aligned with the notion of venture capital, there are a wide variety of sources of capital, although they're not, again, always readily available to women or women of color. But 
one should take full advantage of those. And those range from, you know, if you have savings, of course, that if you have your own credit, of course, that. But beyond that, things like the Cartier Women's Initiative Awards, again, non-dilutive capital. And there's a whole range of grant programs. Now the accelerators have their own grant programs and so forth. And the beauty of some of those programs is when you get those grants, they're non-dilutive. That means you're not giving up equity. And I fully encourage women to consider getting as much of their businesses financed. And of course, the most important way to finance your business, OMPS, eventually to attract venture capital is through customer revenues, demonstrating that you've got a viable product and or service in a marketplace that is scalable and starting to generate those revenues is essential in all cases to have a viable business. I mean, if someone's not willing to pay for it, then it might be a cool idea that your mother's really excited about, but you know, it's not gonna actually be a business. So there are numbers of other ways of sourcing. There's crowdfunding these days. There are many other things. Of course, we talk about banks, although let's not go down that route right now. <laughs> and there are other ways to find financing, but again, it's generally and historically been more challenging for women than for men going down those roads as well. Absolutely. Do you have any stats to hand to highlight how fractional the access to capital is for female-only founding teams versus mixed gender versus all male founding teams? So the last two years have obviously been challenging for everyone. And one of the things we do know, obviously with the onset of COVID last year, is that that created unique problems for everybody and not the least of which for founders and even more so for female founders. So let's just speak about the end of last year after the year was out. What we saw that was despite their outperformance, that is female founders had in a positive way outperformed in the sense that they were exiting earlier at higher valuations per dollar invested. So despite all of that, funding for female founders last year declined by 3% and went up by 16% for the whole market. Mm. So that's driven by investments into male-founded companies, not even with gender-diverse teams necessarily. The good news for this year is that there's been a rebounding. And though, you know, again, it was a really difficult year last year, female-founded companies have grown through the first nine months of 2021 the funding for female founded companies has increased by 70%, 70% from the last high, which was a year end 2019. So we're talking about the first nine months of 2021 are 70% higher than the full year 2019, which was the last record year. So 2019, it was 23.7 billion. That is up to 40.4 billion. So that is super exciting. And that compares with a 43% increase from that same period for the overall market. So the overall market grew from 166.4 billion to 238.7 billion. Having said that, the other part of your question was, so what's the breakout between the women and the gender diverse teams? And that's really an important point. The good news, bad news is that the gender diverse teams got about 36 billion of that 40, meaning the women only teams got 4.5 billion. Mm-hmm. Now, that discrepancy has grown since 2019. And that's concerning because that means if you are a female founder and you don't have a male co founder or two or three male co founders, 
your chances seem to be worse. It's also discouraging because it's during a year when overall funding and venture, the venture asset class has grown amazingly. There's all this money flowing into the venture asset class, but it's flowing in mainly to the growth stages and women to still be at the earlier stages of their companies. And as such, they're not keeping pace with this huge influx, influx of capital, say from private equity funds that are now seeing the returns on venture and saying, oh, on the margins, it's a better deal for me to invest in some growth stage venture companies that are pre-IPO or pre-another type of exit versus investing in the next best private equity deal. Mm. So we're just seeing this money flowing in, which is good news overall. So despite the fact, start out by saying, hey, funding for female founders grew by 70%. Yay. <laughs> you know, shattering records. Yay. But, you know, let's be clear, proportionately, there's still a big discrepancy here that needs to be addressed. What I find surprising is, as you say, so much money has been flooding in and continues to flood into the VC industry as an asset class. We've got very low interest rates. Investors are looking to make a very good return. They're going into riskier assets. Mm-hmm. And what's interesting is, obviously, there's so much more competition now as a result. And you'd think that VC investors would be moving earlier and earlier into the cycle. So looking at seed stage and pre-seed stage, and that's where a lot of female founders are, Mm -hmm. and they continue to be underfunded, underestimated. So you'd think that they'd make that connection and actually pump much more money in the direction of female founders. Yeah, you'd think that. And I think there are two things at play here. One is that where the capital is coming from are larger institutions, institutional investors, even within the venture industry, larger growth stage funds. And they, by definition, in order to stay efficient and effective and keep their risk lower, so they may not have quite as high returns per dollar invested, but they're gonna have pretty darn good returns if they're looking at a growth stage company where the ARR, the annual recurring revenue is quite consistent, has been for a while, where they can see the prospects for exits, whether it's on a private basis or on a public basis, et cetera. For them, that ends up being a better deal, both because of the perceived low risk, higher return, quote unquote, guaranteed, semi-guaranteed return as they perceive it. I'm not suggesting it's guaranteed, but that is the way it's perceived. Let's call it a higher chance of having a great return as well as because they're making larger investments into individual deals, they don't have to manage as many inputs or outputs in their deal flow, right? And that's part of where we talk about systemic biases, where systemic biases happen. Because most funds, most institutional investors are structured in a way that even if they're investing into a fund, they can't put more than 25 or 30% into the fund. They can't be the entire funder of the fund because that would not be a good risk profile. Oh, and their minimum check, by the way, is $50 million. Well, guess what? Most of the funds that are investing in women, and I'll just use ourselves as an example. So we represent over a billion dollars of commitments into female founders. Mm. And we have over a dozen funds that are above $100 million funds. A couple of them are above a billion dollar funds. But most of our funds are below $100 million funds. And most of our funds are on the plus side. You know, they're general partners of women, people of color of both. Those are the ones who pledge to work with us. But they are smaller and they are often also emerging managers, meaning they're in funds one, two, or three. Again, 
they themselves are challenged to raise money even before they turn around to invest the capital they have raised into these female founders. So there is a series of systemic issues going on here that can be addressed and are being addressed by some. And we're working with numbers of both GPs of venture funds and also limited partner investors into both venture funds and into direct deals to work through some of these issues. Mm. And that leads me on to the next question, Shelley, which is you talk to institutional investors, you talk to wealth managers, high net worth individuals. In your conversations, what's some of the feedback that you're getting? What are you hearing from these investors when you talk about investing in female founders and in female-led companies? Just general anecdotal feedback or information that you could share would be useful. Those who have been doing it for a while are wildly enthusiastic, sincerely. They are extremely enthusiastic. I'll give you an example. One big billion-dollar-plus Asian fund led by two men. When we went to them for a pledge in 2018, late 2018, to pledge to do more into female founders because they were a well-known Asian fund but had not done much, they were not only instantly enthusiastic about signing the pledge, but the pledges we take from the funds are confidential. We aggregate them so that you would know the total amount that we've raised. And now we've tracked the total amount, but we don't reveal it unless a fund chooses to reveal it themselves. Because our philosophy going into this effort was to inspire positive action, not to blame and shame. But this company, this fund, this guy who was signing the paper came and said, not only do we, yes, we do, because we've done so well investing into female founders, but we also want to make it very public so the women come to us. Mm-hmm. It's Gobi Partners. They've got a China fund, but we work with the Southeast Asia fund. And they made a pledge of $50 million to be invested over two years. And they've remarkably fulfilled it. But they not only wanted to pledge, they wanted to make it public. And they came to Bali to have a signing ceremony with us on TV, on Asian TV. (laughs) So that's how much they were excited about it. And having said that, we do have some reluctant signatories who we have had to encourage through the process and help share the data with them and show them the, the opportunities and where they may lie. And, you know, some don't believe that there is deal flow in their sector, a few of them and others. But I think the fact that we were able to mobilize as quickly as we have, I mean, we just celebrated our third anniversary. And P.S., we are about to, like literally Wednesday this week, we will be publishing our first billion global impact report on that initial pledge campaign, the Billion Dollar Fund for Women pledge campaign. In the end, we got there quickly with people who were generally enthusiastic to begin with. Mm. What would you say is the main difference between the investors who get it and pledge the money and even want to make it public and those who don't and they take longer? So not speaking about limited partners into venture funds, that is institutional investors who invest into venture funds, just focusing on the general partners for now. There are two kinds of no's that we got. The good no's in my book, some famous high-profile women investors said, look, we're already at over 40% of our investments have female founders. And guess what? It was because, as they pointed out, their investment committees were 50-50 female or 40-60 female. And what we do know and, and what the pitch book report also showed is that there's a growth in female investors. It's up to 15% now in the U.S. Mm-hmm. And women over-index, quote-unquote over-index, to investing into females by 2x, you know, two times as often as men. So a woman check writer is twice as likely to say yes to another woman 
or to female founder or gender diverse team as an all male investment committee or all male decision maker or check writer. So there's that. I'm sure there'll be investors who are listening to this in a, a really inspired we're just thinking we really need to get into this space. What's involved? What do you do? How do you start that conversation and then follow through to completing the engagement so that investors make this pledge? Yeah. So the second kind of person who would say no is where this conversation really matters, right? Mm -hmm. The ones who are either the easy yeses or the noes because they're doing a great job of investing in women already. We couldn't be more delighted to learn that and hear that. And we encourage them to, as they can, where they can publish their data points. And I think that they have found that it reflects well on them as ESG and diversity in general have become more important. Those who are already doing a good job benefit from it. But for the rest, the conversation ranges. The others who might eventually say no are things like, we don't see deal flow in our industry and or, again, the check sizes we write are minimum X millions of dollars and we don't see female founders at growing such big companies or things like that. And then the last thing I say is they believe that what's happening in their organization, if they're really a large fund, is more equitable than it really is. So I'll give you a good example that a conversation with a European billion dollar plus fund manager who I didn't even think he'd take the call, but when he got on the call, he did take the call. When he got on the call, he said, Shelly, one thing you must understand is that when women come through our doors, they're treated absolutely equally to the men. And so I said to him, wow, that's fantastic. I'm so glad to hear that. So out of your 104 companies that you've invested in, how many have female founders? Radio silence. <laughs> and the simple answer was, as I knew, because I checked it before the call, none. They had not invested in a single company that had a female founder. So I said, look, maybe it's true that when women come through your doors, they get treated equally by your investment committee. But have you ever thought what it takes for women to get to and through your doors? And again, no real response to that. And to his credit, he did sign a pledge and they since have three female founders out of their now 107, well, it's more than 107 that they've invested in now, but it starts. And for us, that's really what we were about. We wanted to get these fund managers realizing that there's something wrong going on, even when they thought they were all okay. Mm -hmm. And taking that first step, because we are 100% confident that when they start investing in women, they are going to be blown away because the women are going to do more with less and they're going to have higher returns. They're going to have earlier exits, et cetera, et cetera. And what more can an investor hope for? And we've seen that happening. So our initiative was to catalyze positive action. And we're really proud. I mean, we have not attained all of our goals with the Billion Dollar Fund for Women. What was the Billion Dollar Fund for Women original campaign now beyond the billion? We haven't attained all our goals, but all I can say is we're really proud that so many folks have made it happen in ways far beyond what we could have ever possibly imagined. And frankly, faster than we could have possibly imagined. And as you know, we're not the only players in this space. And we're so appreciative and admiring of others in this space who have helped move this ball forward such that the combination of all of our efforts really creates a momentum that I think is hard to ignore. And I have to say, Shelley, what you've achieved in such a short space of time with this is so, so impressive. Thank you. It's super inspiring. And I think you're also leading the way for a lot of investors that will appreciate working with a party like yourself. I'm curious, though, how is it that some of these fund managers with 100% conviction will say to you on the phone or even face-to-face -face that they are committed to female founders and are investing in female founders. And yet you look at the stats 
And, you know, the data doesn't lie. Potentially they're surprised as well. What's behind that? I think that if it's a really large fund, like any large organization, they're drinking their own Kool-Aid maybe. I don't know. I mean, I I can't really account for all of this. Sometimes it pretty much shocks me what I hear, but but more (laughs) often than not, it's the opposite reaction. I think there's a growing awareness. I'm happy to say there's a growing awareness Hmm. of the opportunity that exists in investing into female founders and gender diverse teams. And again, highlighting the fact that, of course, we're talking about women of color as well, who are just doing amazing things in technology and other places, whether it's med tech or EdTech, AgTech, CleanTech. Yeah. In fact, when we launched and we had our first, I can't remember, like 25 funds, somebody said, oh, that's nice fashion and beauty funds and nothing wrong with fashion and beauty at all. They're great sectors. But, you know, the reality was we have now over 100 funds, not a single fashion or beauty fund. We have e-commerce that does fashion and beauty as part of a large e-commerce spectrum. Hmm. But we've got funds that are investing in Every mainstream issue you can think of, AR, VR, AgTech, CleanTech, FinTech, Cannabis, Blockchain, Cyber, you know, <laughs> uh, SaaS, B2B SaaS, on and on and on. And they're also investing in women. That's the key. That's what we want to see. We're not talking about setting up all gender lens funds, purely gender lens funds. So we're talking about recognize the opportunity you're missing. Mm. As one of our male GPs in Canada, he was our first signatory in Canada, actually. He said, let's face it, women are the most undervalued asset in the world. So if you're not investing in women, you're missing the opportunity for outsized returns because it's an arbitrage opportunity. And he said, look, if you care nothing about equity, this is is a huge opportunity for Alpha that is greater returns. Whereas his fund is actually an ESG fund. So he deeply cares about the equity issues as well as many other related issues in ESG. But he said that really quite frankly to the folks sitting in the audience. We had about 30 fund managers. And I think it was a really important thing for people to understand. I think there's a sense that, oh, if I invest in women, it's concessionary capital. Somehow I'm giving up something. And we're saying, no, no, no. It's not like that at all. Yeah. I said, you're getting the best and the brightest. Because think about it. Men are getting invested in on a normal curve. Women are still, because it's only such a small subset of the women who get funded, it's still probably the creme de la creme who are getting through the gates. And I think over time, when we have more equity in the system, where the same proportion of women who apply for funding get funded as men, then I think we'll see more normal curve of performance or the curves will start merging, if you will. But I think right now you're getting the creme de la creme and that's the opportunity. Very well said. And we also know that women represent the largest emerging market. It's bigger than China and India combined in terms of the opportunity. Mm -hmm. Well, it's the largest investor body because women are inheriting this proportionate amount of the wealth that's transferring now all over the world, not just in the US, but all over the world. Yes. And I want to come back to that point. But I was also thinking as you were talking there, Shelley, about how important it is for these fund managers, these investors who potentially don't spend the time thinking and learning about female founders, the market, the products and services that they're developing, the markets that they focus on. It really does come down to that time and attention Mm -hmm. and making space to really learn about this because the opportunity is there and there's loads of money to be made. So ignoring it is basically leaving money on the table. I'd love to talk about female investors now, and you've touched upon it already in the sense that we talked about growth and the number of general partners at VC firms in the US Mm -hmm. from 12% to 15%. We've also seen growth in the number of female angel investors 
going up from 740 in 2019 to over 1,000, I think, in this year, 2021. Why are we seeing this growth? And why, in your view, do we need more female investors? Having female investors is critical in a couple of ways. It's critical for the female founders because, as I said, the women check writers are twice as likely to invest in women as males are. Even though, surprisingly, in some cases, females have some of the same biases, personal biases, against women as the men do in some cases. But overall, on average, they're twice as likely to write the checks for women. So that's very critical to ensure the capital flow goes to worthy female founders. In fact, in 2021, the number of female check writers in the U.S. went up by 3.5% since 2019, resulting in 15% of all GP positions at funds in the U.S. being females. So that's really fantastic, and that helps. What I attribute it to is a couple of things. One is a lot of awareness built by organizations like AllRays. I want to give AllRays the biggest shout out here Mm -hmm. because that has been their focus. And there are numbers of other organizations that bring that to light as well, but AllRays is done comprehensively. If you're not familiar with AllRays, it's a nonprofit that was mobilized in Silicon Valley by a group of some of the leading women check writers in Silicon Valley, like Aileen Lee and Jennifer Lee. And they originally started as female founder office hours, and that evolved into something much bigger. And they have managed to mobilize not just the female founders who are looking for ways to be more effective with VCs, but then the VC community itself to back them up. And that's been phenomenal. And that certainly has made a huge difference for lots of female founders. And, you know, we so appreciate the work that they do. It has a slightly different focus, but the same end goal. Mm-hmm. You know, we want to see equity for very worthy, innovative founders, wherever they may come from, especially underrepresented, or those who have been traditionally underrepresented. What would you say are some of the barriers getting more women into investing and specifically then investing in startups as angel investors and then as VCs? That's a good question. I think as angel investors and as VCs are two slightly separate things. So an angel investor by its very definition, even though someone might have huge amount of experience as an angel investor, is not considered necessarily a profession. In other words, you don't have to wait for someone to hire you in order to decide to start to invest as an angel. So angel investing is largely a personal decision, right? Deciding that's something you want to do. And I think the issues there have to do with women's exposure to finance, to financial literacy, to investments in general, to the need for managing your wealth and and considering that you want to build your wealth. So I think that that's more the consideration from the angels. And then having opportunities to connect to other angels. And there's a growing number of opportunities for women to connect, not only locally in their own communities, but organizations like Golden Seeds, Golden Seeds, which is now one of the premier angel organizations in the entire country. And they have groups in, I think now five or six cities. They were one of the first ones. Stephanie Newby used to be called Stephanie Hamburg Brown. I knew her when she left JP Morgan, retired young in her fifties and realized that there was a big issue in getting women funded. And we're talking about 15, 20 years ago now. And decided that she needed to do something. She started the angel group that we now know as Golden Seeds. And of course, now it's run by Peggy Wallace and Loretta McCarthy. Loretta McCarthy and I started our careers at American Express. Like (laughs) There are all these little chains and networks that we all have. When I was president of the North American jury, Peggy was one of the judges on the jury before I came on it, actually. Mm -hmm. 
But all these women have played a critical role in ensuring capital for women on the angel side. And the good news is there it's about, you know, women influencing other women. Within our network of venture funds, we actually have a couple of these angel networks that have become funds. So Ostia Angels, for example, in San Francisco, you may be familiar with, yeah. has launched its own fund and got some seed funding from MasterCard, which is one of our sponsors. We also have uh, Portfolia, Trish Costello, who is the founder of Kaufman Fellows, ran it for many years, Kaufman Fellows being the probably preeminent training grounds for young VCs, and then decided to launch her own fund. But what it is, it's, it is a portfolio of individual funds from Femtech. They have the Rising America Fund investing in women and others of color. They have an enterprise fund. You know, they're investing now. They just launched a new food tech fund, ag and food tech fund. Trisha's goal, as she told us in the beginning when she was launching, was to draw in women investors. So her real focus, even though she does end up investing in female founders, her primary goal is to draw in those women investors because she understands what it takes. If we don't have the women angels, capital is not going to be there. And we want women to grow their wealth. So it's very important that way. Switching to the professional side, which is for women to become GPs, is, of course, having knowledge of finance experience in it. And, you know, having the opportunity at the early stages of getting in on the ground floor so that you can move up. Now, there are some who have been in other financial roles before they became VCs, most notably Mary Meeker. Mary Meeker was the leading internet analyst in the heyday of the first internet boom in the 90s and aughts, you know, 2000. She was Morgan Stanley's premier internet analyst who had such success with her analyses and predicting how successful some of these companies were going to be before anybody else was recognized. And Kleiner Perkins recognized her talent and said, okay, come over here, do that work for us and do it privately so that we can benefit in a way that not everybody will. And then of course she spun off, took her whole growth stage team from Kleiner to start Bond Street and was the first woman that I know of that started a billion dollar plus fund on her first Rodeo. Amazing. So yeah, so when we have examples like, or Teresa Gao, who's just an extraordinary investor and had Excel partners and then Access, and now she's ACRU, you know, she's the founding partner and lead partner for ACRU. Yeah. And continue to innovate as an investor. They decided what needed to happen was that funds needed to open up their cap tables to a wider set of investors, basically making angel investors into institutional investors. So mm -hmm. they put out a call to the world and said, look, if you are an underrepresented investor that is a person of color and or female, you get to invest in our basically institutional grade VC." And they reduced investment amounts to, you can invest literally any amount. It was not like a minimum of even $10,000, not to speak of millions, which is what it normally would be in a growth fund. Yeah. And so people just came swarming and they were way over, I mean, her other funds were also oversubscribed, but this one was way oversubscribed because, you know, so many saw the opportunity and realized, man, I don't normally get to have money in a fund that, you know, has these kinds of credentials that has this kind of a track record. So literally people, as I understand, I think the smallest investment was like $10. I don't know who that was. <laughs> so they're managing a huge group of limited partner investors, let's say, using technology. Now technology is there, so you can do that. And are doing an incredible job because one thing you can count on when these investors benefit and they will benefit because I know a lot about their portfolio, about ACRU's portfolio, when they benefit from ACRU's incredible investment prowess and they have 60% of their check writers are women, 
everybody will benefit. And I'm guessing that they'll reinvest and reinvest and reinvest. Why wouldn't you when you do well? And that will help the wealth base for future investors. The more women investors or women who want to invest have access to the opportunities and there are vehicles that allow them to do that. And you don't necessarily need to have those millions, as you said, lower those barriers. You know, the more women on the other side, female founders will have access to more money and also have access to investors who understand what they're trying to build, the products and services they're building out. And it's, it's redistributing wealth because as female founders exit their businesses, the money is shared back to female investors who have more money to invest in. You're creating that virtuous circle and that's what we need. And to your point, Shelley, we know there's a massive transfer of wealth to women as we speak. This decade is referred to as a watershed decade mm -hmm. for women's wealth. And hopefully that will also accelerate a lot of the change that we need to see. Indeed. I do think there's also a lot of support, though, that needs to be given, a lot of education. Mm -hmm. And that's why these new angel networks that are founded by women and target or aim investing at female-led businesses, female-founded businesses, have a big, big role to play. Indeed. Now, my next question was about accelerating change. I don't know whether you'd like to add anything more to that. It's great to see all the stats, the changes that we've seen in 2019 to 2021, how do we see more of the capital flowing at an ever-increasing rate? I think that bringing this message and getting commitments from some of the institutional investors where that money is flowing down through the system is very important. And when we launched Beyond the Billion after the initial campaign was over and we want to launch a new campaign, but also most importantly, pivot to working with you know, larger family offices, institutional investors. One of the things we've been doing is working to both understand the barriers and to work with those companies on the barriers. And it's a combination of the awareness that's building up as well as the commitments that folks are making that will help move us forward. And it takes an understanding of what are those barriers to ask somebody to do something when they're literally legally prevented from doing that because of the way mm. their rules are written and or other commitments they've made. It takes a certain amount of re-engineering and that's where the systemic biases come in. So I think we all believe we understand many things about personal biases, but it's really the systemic biases, I think, ultimately that we need to help overcome. And that's where Sarah and I and our team have been spending a fair amount of effort. We've been hosting private roundtables, invitation-only roundtables to big foundations, to endowments, to large family offices, to work with them on what's preventing faster progress here. And also work with them relative to their goals. Some of them have not understood the opportunities either, I'd say, including sometimes in our own, after our first year in operation, and when we were doing our first reviews, reaching out to one big industrial B2B SaaS company and them telling us that after a year that they just couldn't find the women. <laughs> Goodness. And, uh, you know, and they start going through, well, they were so specialized and I, I, I don't want to talk about now how narrowly they were defining what they were looking for. But even with a narrow definition, it was one layer after another after another. Sarah and I just said, is it true? Are there actually no women in that? If we define the sector that way, is that actually true? And in three weeks, we found the three valid companies that at least met their high-level criteria. I mean, obviously, we didn't go through a whole due diligence process. They did afterwards. But 
But the fact that we could find three in three weeks, and that's not what we do. We don't do deal flow development. <laughs> yeah. But the fact that we could, and the fact that by using our contacts and searching and Googling and you know talking to people in three weeks, and that wasn't the only thing we were doing those three weeks, obviously. So you know, as part-time, call it amateur at that, if we could find three, we went back to them and said, look, with all due respect, if you are sincerely committed to this, if you sincerely want to find women who, and you know, and we're not asking you to invest in anyone who wouldn't meet your criteria, obviously not. We know you wouldn't do it if we did ask, you know, that's not the point. The point is that finding the fact and then seeing how they perform. So I think that helping them give them a new realization and actually, yeah, you got an email from one of their people today say, hey, look at this one company we found is so great. <laughs> so Yay. You know, helping them see the light. But yeah, it's, it's challenging. It's more challenging in some industries than others. But for the most part, our funds don't tell us that deal flow is their issue. Our funds, because they're younger funds, for the most part, are telling us that raising money themselves is maybe an issue. So that's yeah. what we're working on. We're working on some of those things. Generally speaking, if you continue to surround yourself with the same people, having the same conversations and targeting very similar companies, that is the world that you live in. And you think, well, there are no women, but that's because mm -hmm. you continue to tread the same path. Exactly. And it's not until they come across your organization, you present that alternative view. It's a different worldview. There are so many female founders out there doing incredible things, innovating across all industries. All you need to know is how to tap into it and maybe just look slightly to your right and you'll find right. <laughs> all of those incredible opportunities. So you're opening up that view for a lot of these very traditional funds or investors. Yeah, and I have to highlight one other thing that has helped here because uh, it occurs to me that I haven't done that. We're talking here about systemic biases. Things are built into the systems apart from any personal biases. And when we do these roundtables, we always make sure to have one or two, what I call it, champions who similarly have had the issues that the rest of the folks in the room might have or be having or continue to have and have started on the journey maybe a couple of years ago and have seen breakthroughs and what it took for them to get to those breakthroughs and let somebody else be the endorser of the thesis, if you will. Yeah. So having a couple of very large funds that have undertaken diversity investments a couple, two or three years ago in the room with funds that were just beginning on that journey was huge because they can then say, look, we didn't realize it, but all of a sudden we started realizing that this process and that process was preventing us from even seeing opportunities. And they would go through in detail, whether it was the sourcing, you know, or including within their own organizations, the fact that their own organizations might not have been diverse and therefore not open to seeing certain opportunities, right? So mm -hmm. everything from DEI in their own organizations to every other thing they had to do to change their processes. So they would say they're still on their journey and they are, but I see them as a really successful organization that's undertaken this journey and had already some tremendous breakthroughs, but they said it took them a lot longer than they thought. If you create a path and you're committed to the path and you change your processes, this point that you made and that we also make and that we count on these, what I call the champions, the early birds, you know, the early adopters make, is that it's not going to happen unless you change the processes and the organization itself. And, and it's got to be top down. That's the other thing. It's got to be led from the top. Correct. Leaders in the organization have to completely be on board mm -hmm. and lead the way. So much really useful information there, Shelley. 
Now, I'd love to shift gears. I know you're an angel investor yourself. Mm -hmm. I'm really interested in your journey. And obviously, you've invested in female-led startups. Can you share how you got started and perhaps give us an example of a portfolio company that you invested in and how that's gone? For a number of years, I was starting my own companies. So that was my main (laughs) investment, was into companies that I was founding or co-founding. Five out of six successful exits. So we got that going for us. But yeah, I mean, I think as you get exposed, I I have to say, you're asking me about my angel journey. I, I, I want to have a true confession here. You know, I did not, for the most part, have the experiences that today's women are having with funding. And here's why. The first company I started was self-funded. My business partner and I self-funded it. And then we built it out with customer revenues and we sold it seven years later. So we never really went the venture route with that first company. We did get bank loans and et cetera, but you know, that wasn't part of it. But then from the second company on, I always had male co-founders and or major male customers who came out of my background of what, what I'd done at Bank of America, whatever, who were there with me to invest into my companies because I was more or less building the companies around the problems they were telling me they were having. So five of the six companies were in financial services and they were solving some of the critical problems that I had come to understand from my customers. I thought, oh, wait, that's not a problem. That could be a huge opportunity for you to make more money. <laughs> yeah. So I have to admit that and after I moved to DC and I started working with some different NGOs and women entrepreneurs, my first question, the first, I will never forget the first event I went to for women entrepreneurs. And I thought, I don't even understand why an NGO needs to exist to help women entrepreneurs. We build our companies, you know, whatever. And then I started seeing what was going on. And so I myself had to have my eyes open to like what the fuller picture was, I guess. In retrospect, I consider myself super lucky and obviously had a different kind of approach. I had my corporate career before I had my entrepreneurial career, which not only taught me many things about management, about finances, et cetera, but also about gave me networks mainly of men who were investing in my companies. I mean, to be quite honest, I did not have, no, there was one woman who invested in one of the companies, but if it wasn't me and my business partners, and my business partners were the first one was a woman. And then after that, I had more gender diverse teams. So I have to admit that I myself had to become aware. So how did I become an angel? So that was part one is building the awareness. Number two, was recognized, well, I have this capital and I have thought about starting another company, but I had not thought about investing in other women-founded companies. So that was part two of that, right? Realizing that, oh, okay, maybe I want to take it easier and take a break now for a while and invest in somebody else and let them have their day. And then the third part was obviously then just being moved by and having access to companies that excite you and that after you assess them, you realize really have tremendous actual financial capacity and potential. So all of that was a journey. And the last part was, I will say all of this was on the back of the fact that I was already in financial services and a lot of women are not. And so I think for most women, that's the biggest hurdle, becoming financially literate, becoming comfortable with investments in general, even public sector, you know, things that seem lower risk and so forth, doing that first. And recognizing that angel investment will typically be, call it on the margins of the rest of what you invest in, because whatever your life needs are and whatever your life planning is for your kids, for your retirement, whatever you might be planning for, for a house, whatever it is, that venture in general is considered higher risk and generally is high risk. And that would come after you've done all the rest of your portfolio construction or your whoever's helping you do that. 
So there's that. But anyway, I came to it realizing that I had the capacity and you know, once I did have it and saying, wow, this is exciting. I can start like supporting other women doing this. And that was it. <laughs> One of the companies I'm most excited about was a company I met at a Springboard Enterprises, if you're familiar with them. Springboard Enterprises hosts these dolphin tanks, not shark tank, but dolphin tank. And it's pitch competitions for women. Right. What you offer up to the women is not like all these harsh questions that challenge their possibilities or whatever, but rather make offers of support to the women if you're moved to do that. So there were 10 pitchers that night. Two of them I thought were very good. Then the 10th one blew me away. The 10th one just totally blew me away. She was an architect and she was building, co-working with licensed childcare. And if I knew nothing else from all the other work I've done for women, we all know there's an infinite demand for childcare. And we also know that gig economy workers were at that time, this pre-COVID, co-working was like a huge growing segment and sector, right? So I walked right up to her and I said, this is amazing. How can I help you? What a brilliant idea. And we met a number of times. I then had uh, someone who I know who had been an executive for over a decade in that space, in the childcare space. I knew the co-working was more real estate, but you know, the childcare space helped me vet her. And I ended up investing in her because I thought, this is amazing. I then found out that she was also an MBA at Georgetown, where I'd been an entrepreneur in residence. And there was a prize competition going into its second year for a $100,000 prize. And I nominated for it and she won it. <laughs> so oh, wonderful. Yeah. And have continued to work with her and connect her up to people and that sort of thing. But she and her business partner, who is a, a fellow classmate, a guy, the two of them have been building this out and are doing amazingly well. And my investment in them has already, you know, the later valuations have grown well. And I'm very mm -hmm. excited and very enthusiastic about it. But I have also invested in a couple of really promising women founders with promising concepts where on one hand, I think the execution was weak. And on the other one, I think I didn't know the sector well enough to assess what their real competition was. They're both still in business. So some still open for something, but you know, not every investment is a win-win. And then there are mm -hmm. others as well. So anyway, I'll just stop there. And I think it's really important to say that you should only invest money that you're prepared to lose. That's not to say that you will right. lose your investment, but you certainly don't put 100% of your net worth into startups. You should be diversified and you should perhaps speak to a financial advisor if that is the best route for you mm -hmm. uh, to decide how much of your net worth you can allocate. So there's this strategy that you should consider. You should also have a, an investment thesis of sorts. Mm -hmm. But the first step is just start learning, just mm -hmm. start looking into this space, even if you don't have the capital or you're not ready to mm -hmm. consider investing, at least you can start learning about it. And can I just add something to that? You know, one fun thing you can do, I've been doing this with my, I have uh, grandsons and one of them is particularly interested. He's 10 years old, but he's really super interested in this, is doing a sort of phantom portfolios of either public companies or if you have insights into private companies, but to help them understand how it works. And if I had a granddaughter, it would make me so delight me to be doing that with her. But unfortunately, I've got four grandsons. So there's that. <laughs> That's a really good idea. So for women who have access to capital and they want to invest in women, but they're sort of standing on the sidelines and they're listening to this, how do they get started? How can they move forward? There are numbers of organizations, both, like I said, local angel networks or, you know, reaching out to an organization like, the Golden Seeds or some of the other national or there are global angel networks as well Yeah, to consider. But definitely get educated first. That's the first thing. 
and consider that because I mean, if, for most of us, when we get started, we have only so much capital if we have that to allocate to something like investing in women. And then you have to wait. You know, one of the things you have to remember, we call venture investing patient capital for a reason, because you have to wait. It's not like the stock market where you can watch it every day go up and down and decide that in a year you want to sell because you're going to buy a house or whatever you're going to do with it. It's not liquid necessarily. Some investments are more liquid than others, but all those considerations, you know, and get smart about it. I mean, learn about what, what it takes and what the considerations are, both from a portfolio construction, in other words, what else are you investing in to meet your goals, but also from a sectoral point of view and other things that you would need to understand. So, so get smart first. Elevest is a good one, a female founded company that offers up opportunities for women to learn. And Investopedia is a resource, you know, lots of resources around to get started. And the more women you have around you who basically want to join you on the journey, I think the easier it will be. And you can start having these conversations on a regular basis, which means that hopefully you can hold each other accountable, you can learn together, you can bounce ideas off each other. That's all really useful as well, I think. Yeah, I mean, I think it's more fun to do it in a group in a sense, because, and yes, it will, I think it will help your learning as yeah. well, as opposed to just sitting at your computer and learning. <laughs> but it's not either or, as we've learned during COVID, you know, yeah. you know having a hybrid, as we call it, the hybrid approach is probably the best approach. Absolutely. And listening to podcasts like this one, mm -hmm. hopefully exactly. will add <laughs> to the learning. My final question, Shelley, and I want to say thank you for being so open and sharing so much. Uh, this is a very, very important topic, and you are a driving force in the US and globally. And I'm really inspired by everything that you have said today. So my final question is for the female founders, the entrepreneurs that are listening to this, they are leading in female-led innovation. What message do you have for them? And they're obviously looking for capital. They want to raise money. They're in the process of raising money. What's your final message to these female founders? Be bold and be confident. There's nothing like confidence to inspire confidence. I think when we came out with the Billion Dollar Fund for Women, half the folks thought we were crazy and the other half thought, whoa, that's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> and those who thought that's awesome said, yeah, how do I sign on? And that's really what happened. I mean, you have to create a level of excitement and that's hard. You know, I'm saying that in a way not to suggest that that's in any way easy. There's nothing harder, I think, being an entrepreneur, even though we put it out there as being this glamorous thing. It's not glamorous. Mm. It's a lot of hard work. And, and, you know, you have as many days, maybe they're discouraging as days that are encouraging. So, you know, just be bold, be confident and take it forward. And then as far as specifically as it relates to raising money, if you're interested, if you're, if you're actually fundraising now at the venture level, and again, that's not for everybody at this time, you can go on our website, beyondthebillion.com, and we have filters at the top where you can filter through. The one at the very top is for $100 million plus funds, and the one at the sort of middle of the page is for under $100 million funds. Put in your geography, your sector, and your stage to see whether or not some of those who have pledged through us are aligned with what you're doing. And you know, feel free to reach out to them because that's what it's there for. To facilitate those filters are there to facilitate your search. You should always look for when you're looking for who's going to invest in your company. I'm sure you've heard already. I won't be the first one to say it, I'm sure, but it is very true. It's not just about the money. It's about what other kind of resources do these people bring to help you grow. 
And, you know, will they connect you to customers? Will they connect you to technology? Will they connect you to supply chains and so forth? So all of that's important. And flip the script, we like to say. You're the one in charge. It's your company. And you decide who gets to invest. And, and think about it that way. It's not who are you begging to invest in your company. Who gets to invest in the opportunities and in your hard work and the things that you're going to do to make this company successful? So if you think about it that way, hopefully you'll get a little bit more encouragement in facing the tough choices and questions. That's fantastic advice, Shelley. And, and if listeners want to reach out to you directly, how can they do that? I'm on LinkedIn and so forth. As Shelley at beyondthebillion.com. Wonderful. Well, Shelley, thank you for your time. Thank you so much, Anna. Thank you for joining me today. If you would like to connect with me, you can find me online at Join the Purse. Or you can subscribe to our newsletter, jointhepurse.substack.com. Until next time, goodbye.